You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. On the first terrace of Purgatory proper, the pilgrim Dante looks up and looks down and sees art everywhere. Art so grand that it surpasses the nature that in Dante's Aristotelian world, art is supposed to reflect. He soon realizes that the art is there not merely to showcase the greatness of the sculptor, but also to provide an education, an emblem for contemplation, and an occasion to imagine life without the burden of pride. To be sure, that's one story we can tell about art and the life of the soul. And here among the living, there's an array of other stories we can tell. So it's good to talk with an art historian like Dr. Heidi Hornick about the other stories that painting and sculpture and architecture inhabit. Today she's joining us to talk about her recent book, The Art of Christian Reflection, from Baylor University Press. Thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles, Dr. Hornick. Thank you for having me. I want our listeners to hear the story of this book before we launch into particular paintings and sculptures. Uh, so what was the journal Christian Reflection, and how did your work here take its form as a book, uh, The Art of Christian Reflection? Well, the project began nearly 20 years ago now um, and continued until about three years ago. And it was out of the Center for Christian Ethics here at Baylor University um, in Waco. And Bob Krushwitz was the editor, and he actually wrote the foreword in this book. So you can kind of get a sense of his take on the whole project as well. But it was the idea was to provide... Uh, the larger community, uh, churches, schools, um, theological schools, as well as everyday Christians with an ethical perspective related to various issues that Christians were facing. So my part as art editor was when a theme was decided upon, and it was published four times a year, uh, to make some art that, or make commentary on art that fit in with that theme. And sometimes it was easier than others, I will say, but, um, but it was always a challenge, and it was usually pretty brief, uh, 350 to 1,500 words. Uh, so I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it because it crossed the whole history of art. And as you've seen with the book, it kind of focuses on three different areas, Christian habits and virtues, the second being moral issues facing contemporary Christians, and the final third uh, section about formative and liturgical practices. So after we kind of stopped the series, Bob retired, moved on, I thought to myself, why not bring them all together? And I couldn't do all because I did three pieces of art every issue. So there was just too many. So I figured, well, which 80 or so could I do well? And how would they fit into these thematic, three thematic sections? And that's what, that's what happened. And Baylor University Press loved the idea. Um, and I got some grant money to get the color printing done, and we wound up with a, what, I, what I think is a beautiful book and hopefully a very useful book. Very good, very good. I was in seminary uh, about 20 years ago, uh, so it's interesting. I mean, I remember my professors talking about uh, the need for people going into the ministry you know, to, to focus more, to learn more about art. Uh, as far as you can tell, I mean, how prevalent was that movement uh, there in the mid to late nineties, or, I mean, were you, were you all kind of the pioneers of this kind of thought among Protestants? It, it was very, very popular. Um, I think a lot of things 
came from it. For instance, now Christian Century, the magazine, does the final page each issue of, of work of art and a brief write-up. So um, this idea of kind of smaller art fitting in with a theme or fitting, fitting in with a lectionary um, pattern was, was really, I think, one of the first. Um, and, it, and it's a great thing for, for uh, theologians to know, for preachers to know, um, and your Bible school classes, you know, it, it was a kind of very popular subject. So, Well, good, good. I want to start our, our look into particular works with an artist and a biography that should give our listeners a flavor uh, for how this book engages with the life of art and the life of faith. What does the life of Caravaggio in particular and his calling of St. Matthew uh, have to offer Christians as we contemplate this notion of divine vocation or calling? Well, you're right. It's a great one to start with. Um, Caravaggio is a very popular figure now, the Italian Baroque uh, painter who lived a very tormented, very um, spiritually inspired, certainly, but a a very difficult life. Um, And yet he gives us some of the most religious works, the most spiritually uh, exciting works. So with the calling of St. Matthew, as well as with the calling of um, the Peter cycle as well, um, these are major figures in in the New Testament, and they are called to not only follow God and follow Jesus, but also to write the words of Scripture. So in the um, calling of St. Matthew, you see in the, um, the Contarelli Chapel in, in the French church in Rome, San Luigi de Francesi, which is very, right, right near the Pantheon. So a lot of people do kind of trip over it when they've gone to the Pantheon in Rome and they see the signs for this church, and I encourage them to go there. But you have this beautiful scene of um, Matthew literally running to the table being inspired so he doesn't forget the words as the angel, his symbol, um, uh, is above him. And so you have the dramatic tenebrous light, which is like a theatrical light. It's like a spotlight. So it's really breathtaking. And it's in its, in its original location. Uh, the paintings very rarely travel. Um, and they're, it's the center of three scenes um, of, of the life of Matthew. On the left is the calling. Uh, excuse me, on the, in the center is the... Uh, inspiration and then the calling of St. Matthew, and then also on the right-hand side, the death of Matthew, uh, the martyrdom of Matthew. So when you, when you think about the calling and the inspiration, you have to think about, wow, you know, here's Matthew in a tavern, um, you know, as a tax collector, counting money, and Jesus and Peter come in, and, and basically he's, he's looking at them like, who, me? You don't want me. What am I supposed to do for you? And so often we all feel that way, right? Um, so, and then the next scene, like I said, you've got this inspiration of Matthew where he, he changes completely and can't wait to write down the words once he's inspired and feels, um, that, that, that call to, um, to scripture and to God. Very good. I want to turn to another painting, uh, that really caught my eye and it's one that I wasn't really familiar with. Uh, and this was Bassano's Good Samaritan. Uh, the question, and oh yeah, I, I, it just occurred to me, that is the uh, painting on the cover of the book as well. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The question it posed to me is how this story unfolding in time as a teller tells it relates to the spatially arranged text of a written or printed gospel and how both of those relate to this painting 
uh, where we don't have uh, one moment in the story captured, but instead we kind of have elements arranged almost as if it were a text. So what does this painting in particular have to offer when we think about narrative and space and text and memory and all these groovy things that art helps us to think about? Well, it, it is one of my favorites, obviously. We, you know, we put it on the cover. Um, and it, it's also, I think, at this one point, it's very dramatic and recognizable. Um, and you see it and you think, oh, of course, that must be the Good Samaritan, um, the person helping someone who he's supposed to be a sworn enemy of. And then on the other hand, you look at it and you realize that there's dogs in the foreground, that it has a, a beautiful um, background uh, with, a, with a landscape of a mountain and a sky and blue, and then the contrast with this kind of dark cave type of area. And Bassano, uh, being a 16th century painter, was very conscious of uh, not only the theatrical, but almost the placement of the figures to help tell that story. So we focus in on the, on the depravity of the man, on the, the wounds, bandages around his head, um, the, the, the one cloth <laughs> across his body. And then everything else is about this, this, this uplifting of him. Um, and then when you, you know, you know the story, um, you realize that the whole thing is, is meant to pull at our emotions and to make us think, well, if, if, if that person could help someone who was a sworn enemy, why can't we get along better with our neighbors or on the larger scale, better get along better with each other in a global sense? Um, so it really, it really is a powerful, beautiful painting um, that, as you said, keeps closely to the narrative, but also can be easily applied to contemporary culture. Very good, very good. Well, another Bible painting, and, and this is one, uh, I'll go ahead and tell my story of it. It was in a friend of mine's dorm room in college, and I just thought it was cool looking. Uh, but Dolly's Crucifixion, uh, I've always admired it, but uh, your book situated it historically uh, in a way that I, I hadn't before, just because I hadn't studied Dolly enough. Uh, and you call this a work of nuclear mysticism. Uh, what does that phrase mean? Well, it, it's not my term. That's the first thing. Um, it really is, you know, Dali was a, was a surrealist. And he, despite being a very progressive artist in a very um, controversial time in history, you know, in the 1950s and early 1960s, um, he was also very spiritual. And so he tried to, and, and it's funny, you should, you should, pick this one because I was just in New York for a conference and I, I made sure I looked at that one again. It was, it's in the um, uh, Metropolitan Museum of Art permanently and it, it still captivates me. And, and it's funny because when I looked at it this time, it's hung much lower. So you're not, Christ is not elevated on the cross. Christ is, Christ is literally on your level. And then you realize he's kind of rising up inside the painting. So, um, yeah, so anyway, when Dali was, was uh, very concerned about the bombing of Hiroshima, um, and he was somewhat, you know, like most artists and most people were affected by it, um, he really wanted to, to find a way to show the traditional in a different sense. And so with, the, um, with, this, 
with this rising Christ, if you will, um, you know, he just has almost like little refrigerator magnets, they almost look like, um, holding him up onto the cross as opposed to any nail holes. So there's no defacing of the body. There's no blood. Um, it looks actually more like an ascension than it does a crucifixion. So this, um, this kind of um, nuclear mysticism was, was inspired by the nuclear bomb, but yet mysticism in the sense that let's get back to the basics here. Let's get back to the, the greatest mystery we have, the incarnation of God and the subsequent death, resurrection, and ascension. And, and it's wonderful. Very good. So with these three uh, biblical pieces that we started with, I mean, what strikes me as someone who, who spends his time teaching narratives uh, is that in the same way that a narrative necessarily compresses time, diverts the user, the, uh, the user, the reader's focus, uh, you know, does these sorts of things artistically. I mean, I see uh, Caravaggio highlighting a particular place and I see Bassano uh, again, compressing the time that, you know, normally elapses in a narrative. And I see Dali just, you know, completely altering uh, the conventional sort of visual elements here. Uh, what, what kinds of questions theologically uh, have arisen as you've taught these pieces? Because I'm always uh, curious to know, I mean, what other people's students see when they look at these artworks. Well, that's a very good question. And I love um, having classes that have a variety of majors. You know, like when I teach a survey level art history class or if my husband, Mike Parsons, a religion scholar, and I teach an art and theology class, it attracts people from all different you know, areas of interest across the university. And the questions that come up are, are usually very, very interesting. Um, I taught actually the St. Matthew, the calling of St. Matthew uh, about a week ago. And one of the students said, well, you know, why, why doesn't anybody else notice? You know, everybody else is still you know, counting the money. Why, why is it only, Peter, you know, always me, only Matthew that looks up when Peter and Jesus come into the room? And you know, that was a very good question. But again, it's Caravaggio's focus. He wants our attention to be on Matthew, who says, uh, you know, who me? Not everybody else who's distracted. We shouldn't be distracted when God comes into our life um, or Scripture comes into our, our focus. You know, our, we should remain focused on that. And, and both of the, art, of the uh, other artists you mentioned do the same thing in a different way. And so, you know, Dali, you may look at it and say, wow, that's a crazy version of a crucifixion. But then when you start realizing what inspired him, as we talked about, or, um, you know, why John is at the foot of the cross, and, of course, that's a direct refer reference to the crucifixion as told by John, where um, Mary the mother John the Beloved and Mary Magdalene were at the foot of the cross, then they become, you know, more interested, like, well, then what happened to the Mary, you know? And I can't answer that. But for whatever reason, um, Dolly just wanted that focus, that direct interpretation of the narrative to between one person, John the Beloved, and Jesus at that moment. Very good. I'm, I'm reminded uh, when you were talking about Caravaggio of the uh... – moment in Milton's Paradise Lost where uh, Mammon, the devil, gets described as uh, completely fixated on the uh, architectural features of heaven and, you know, distracted mm -hmm. from the glory of God. Uh, and it's fun to teach that one, you know, like you were saying, because you can very easily point students to the fact that a book before 
when they were building Pandemonium, the great demonic fortress, uh, we, the readers, were likewise distracted. So it's it's very interesting yeah. that visual art is doing, you know, uh, analogous things, I would say. Yes, definitely. Definitely. Well, very good. The, the book's lengthy second section uh, is on modern moral tensions, as you mentioned earlier. Uh, and you focus on Manet's pa- painting Nana as a subversive engagement uh, with the pornographic culture of the 19th century and as a challenge to the 21st century's own demonic take on pornography. So what's going on in this piece in particular by Manet that poses such a challenge? Well, let's say the challenge actually was that theme, pornographic culture. (laughs) That was the first challenge for me, um, trying to find art that would um, make some kind of a commentary and be be worthy of reading um, in that thematic issue. And um, somewhat coincidentally, my very first paper in graduate school was a seminar on Manet by a wonderful scholar, George Mauner. And um, that was the painting I worked on. And I remember thinking that this, this is a coquette, a courtesan, a very wealthy, um, high-priced uh, call girl. And we're looking at her um, at her boudoir in front of her mirror. And she, more importantly, is looking directly out at us as she applies her lipstick. And I thought, you know, that was the 19th century risque. That was, you know, what um, now we look at it, as, as the book says, is just so, you know, quaint and not at all um, provocative and not at all overly sexed, um, like some even underwear ads could be uh, thought to go a little too far sometimes. So, you know, let alone movies, right? So this whole idea of what is voyeurism and when does voyeurism cross the line into pornography? And this is a voyeuristic painting, um, Botticelli's Birth of Venus, that we all go to the Uffizi to see and to study, was also private voyeurism. And there's a level of acceptance um, and commentary on culture, whether it be mythology, as with Birth of Venus, or contemporary culture, as in Paris in the 1870s, that is still acceptable, but it's, it's right on the on the on the ledge and you've got to decide what's appropriate for you what's appropriate for your children um in this in this world right now so that was that was the take on it um you know nana was a very famous figure um zola zola um emil zola wrote a novel not yet published um it was a little bit later but um he had done a series in a journal and with a character named Nana, uh, Nana. And so um, Baudelaire, Zola, Mallarmé, Manet, they were all friends in this Parisian cafe culture. So that's where we think um, Manet got his inspiration. But then my, my take on it took it one, t- one step further because I also, um, Nana, I think, was a symbol of St. Genevieve, who was the patron saint of Paris, because nobody could ever... Um, make an association about why there was lit candles there. Um, and St. Genevieve or Genevieve was um, a lifelong virgin, frequently shown with, you know, this extinguished candle, and that according to a legend, she could ignite by making the sign of the cross. So I wanted to suggest that in every culture, there, there may be some other meaning, there may other, be some other interpretation that we could get to um, about voyeurism, about 
the application of um, contemporary works and try to make those associations. Well, that's an interesting uh, path because I remember uh, at my, you know, fairly conservative Christian college in the mid-90s, our professors had to go out of their way to get us actually to see a Botticelli and to study it as art rather than simply to, uh, you know, either avoid it or, you know, wait till we were alone and then enjoy it as voyeurism. Uh, what, what kinds of practices, I mean, are involved in actually seeing the art or, you know, are we making too much of that distinction, do you think? Well, I, I mean, I do think, like everything else in art, um, it's a personal choice. You know, the, the audience, you're going to have your likes and your dislikes. Um, whether it's a Rothko black-on-black canvas or something that has a beautiful nude female, you know. Um, And that's going to be your decision. And certainly you're going to be guided um, by your education, by your experience with the world, uh, by your personal preferences. So um, my my inclusion of, uh, or even our reason for doing the pornographic culture, was to at least try to address it. And you know, get people to think about it, um, but not to make any necessarily any any commentaries. I mean, like you said, the more you learn about the art, the more you understand why it was produced in each time period or each culture. And that doesn't mean you have to like it personally or even continue to study it. But you're aware of that part of that culture um, in our historical past. Very good. One thing I like most about reading art history and talking with art historians uh, is that I learned to see things in pieces that I would not have seen on my own. So what does the classical tradition of Eos and Memnon uh, teach us to see and look at when we look at the Pieta tradition in Christian art? Well, I, I love doing that Eos and Memnon, and I was glad I was able to include it in the book because we all know Michelangelo's famous Vatican Pieta in St. Peter's. If you've not been there, you've certainly seen the pictures, you know? And and, and, and if you from? haven't seen the pictures, you've seen the last Harry Potter movie. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, you've got this, this wonderful um, and, and, and so emotionally provoking image of always a young or youthful woman in the figure of, of Mary the Mother, holding the dead body of her son. I mean, what a painful, you know, as a, as a mother, you know, what a painful potential occurrence for anyone who could um, even fathom that pain. And yet Michelangelo sculpts it as if Jesus was sleeping, that, you know, his body is draped beautifully over her lap, one last time for a mother to hold her son. And, and the early Christians and the Northern artists who did it actually before, both of them before Michelangelo did, of course, um, didn't invent the wheel. Um, they looked at, you know, Greek mythology. And um, Doris, the painter and potter from the 5th century BCE, the height of classical Greek culture, shows Eos with the body of her son, um, Memnon, who had been killed by Achilles. So you have this beautiful source and precedent of a uh, Greek tragedy, uh, but it's it's the same level of pathos that's going to be experienced by Mary and uh, with with Jesus through 
later, quote unquote, Western works of art, whether they be Northern examples or Italian examples. Very good. Well, you mentioned Michelangelo. Uh, and one thing that I learned as I read this book, I really hadn't uh, studied this part of art history at all, uh, was about the Florentine shift uh, from art as a sort of uh, trade guild to art as a learned profession. And, and the way you tell the story, Michelangelo is central to that uh, change in the status of the artist. So, uh, you know, why is that change important? Well, that's, that's critical, and it's critical because of the professional artists that we have now in our culture. You know, how does someone who wants to study art get trained? And that all started in the 16th century when um, Michelangelo, along with um, Bronzino and uh, Montorsoli, a sculptor, and Michele Tuzzini, another painter, the four, those four artists went to um, then Duke Cosimo Primo de' Medici, and said, we need some kind of a, um, a grouping beyond the traditional craftsmen and the craft guild system, which, as you know, was started in the medieval period. And basically, that was, you know, when, when, when cities started to be formed, these people could, could unite and they could share facilities and they could um, have more of a governance of their works and set costs and get patronage and so forth. And that guild system worked for centuries. But it didn't have the intellectual component that and Michelangelo leading the way um, and Giorgio Vasari, a, a biographer and an architect and a painter, they really wanted to get formal training. And that's when you get the Academia del Diseño or the Academy of Design or Draftsmen, where every artist is going to be taught together how to draw. And those are the foundational principles of, of many art schools and art departments, such as ours here. We have our students take three and four drawing classes and then do 2D and 3D. That all started from the 16th century. And why? Because not only were they learning how to draw and then how to do their specialty, how to do paint, how to do fresco, tempera, oil, or how to sculpt with marble, or how to do prints with intaglio or etching, then they could specialize. But everybody had that foundational area, which also included learning Latin, learning um, how to do uh, basic sums so that they could keep their own account books. Um, I work in the archives in Florence and look at these documents of artists recounting their money and, you know, the, in, the, positive, the double, um, double column bookkeeping, you know, the, uh, the debits and the credits. And so they learned all that in the academy as well. Very good. And like I said, I mean, this is fascinating to me because I had just assumed, I guess, that the system that gave us the great Gothic cathedrals was probably the same system uh, that gave us, you know, the, the, the boom of the Renaissance that, you know, it was just kind of an infusion into, or a, a, an infusion of new ideas into an existing system. But the story you're telling is the whole system went out the window and something new arose in its place. The, uh, the, old, the guild system was still there. I mean, there were still, and, and today you'd probably say they were more trade unions. You know what I mean? Um, whether you have um, some, like the, the, a plumber's union or a, um, a union of craftsmen in different ways. Uh, but in terms of the arts, yes, it was a major change in the intellectual development of the artist. That's fascinating. Well, I want to stay with uh, Michelangelo for a moment. I, I have heard more than once the story of how Moses got his horns. You can tell that if you want. 
Uh, but I had never heard uh, the story of why his torso is so long in the famous uh, Roman statue of Moses. So uh, where was Moses supposed to be sitting, uh, and how did that affect the way that Michelangelo sculpted him? Well, that's, that's an excellent question, and I do illustrate, as you say, um, the, the Moses, but this same kind of um, method or placement, it also applies to Michelangelo's probably even more famous David. If you've gone to see that, both of these figures seem to not be in perfect proportion. They seem to be too large in the torso, too large in the case of David, too large in the legs. And the reason for both of these is that originally um, the placement was very different than the way we are seeing them. Um, to start with the Moses, this Moses was supposed to go on the second level um, of a 30-foot high, so basically at least 10 to 12 feet above eye level, or above floor level, excuse me, um, and basically be looking down on us. Um, and this was a papal tomb for um, Pope Julius II, the, the, the famous pope who had the Sistine Chapel ceiling painted by Michelangelo, among other things. Um, and so he wanted, he, the pope, wanted Michelangelo to do um, 25 over life-size figures for this colossal tomb that was like four-sided. Four, four it was huge. Well, that didn't happen. He dies, um, and Michelangelo winds up doing... Um, well, it's debated a little bit, but certainly the Moses and then probably two or three other sculptures that were thus finished by later artists on this tomb that is now um, in Rome um, in the Church of San Pietro in Vincoli or St. Peter in Chains. So that's why um, the torso was elongated, because of the perspective you were supposed to have. And if, if you want me, I talk about the David as well. Um, yeah, by all means. David, Okay, 14 foot 4 inches. Um, this sculpture was meant to be put on the buttress, so the outside of the Duomo, the main cathedral in Florence, um, and, and that's where it was supposed to be, over 20 feet probably above eye level. So when, when Michelangelo finished this David, and it was a, a commission that had been failed, a block of marble from Carrara that had been failed, uh, two sculptors had tried to do this. So he, imagine getting a block of marble that two people had already tried to carve into, and you get this colossal David out of it. When the committee, and it was a, a combination of a um, church committee and a town committee, a civic committee, looked at this, they said, we're not putting that up on the buttress, you know? So they, they put it in front of the Palazzo Vecchio, which again, no separation of church and state, and that was the seat of the government. So there David stood for until the 19th century when he was wheeled down um, via Ricasoli and put into the placement in the museum where he is now, um, which, by the way, is right next door to the current Ac Academia del Disegno. So we've kind of come full circle here um, with your questions. But, yeah, so you're, you're looking at a David who should have been much higher, and that's why he, he adjusts, like foreshortening, you know, he adjusted the, um, the proportions because of the eye placement and perspective. Very good, very good. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the history of ideas in art, uh, and I want to focus on uh, anger in the biblical tradition. Uh, a lot of times when we talk about uh, Christ driving the money changers from the temple, we, we talk about it as a moment of rage. But you note that uh, Scarsellino's focus in his Christ driving the money lenders from the temple is not rage or the anger of Jesus, but instead his zeal 
And, you know, once you pointed that out, I, I studied the painting a little bit more carefully. And, you know, what you can see there is, is not a loss of control, but a, a very distinct focus. Um, so what makes this, this distinction important between zeal and anger? And uh, what place does this painting have in this sort of history of, you know, philosophical psychology, if you will? Well, I think you, you've caught on a, a very um, good point, and I appreciate your reading so closely, um, because we, we all know the story of Christ driving the money lenders from the temple, and we, we, we think of it as the time, you know, Christ lost his patience, so to speak. And um, he, he, was, he was upset in Scarsolino's painting, but if you look at his face, you really look at his face in that painting, um, it, it, it's almost sadness. You know, it's just like, kind of get away from me. Just leave me alone. This is so horrible, I can't bear it. And, and you know, that kind of, um, not rage, but frustration. And, and, and then it creates this zealous act of raising his, his hands um, and his arms in almost, you know, again, just kind of pushing away. Get, you know, get out of my, my space. Get, get out of my, my father's house. And so it becomes this, this, this very um, inner experience that is portrayed in the gesture. Um, but it is, a, it, is, it is an introspective Christ. It is not an anger figure, you know. Um, there's certainly enough painted images of, of people with horrible faces or, you know, using the head of Medusa or, um, you know, tragic faces. Like I think we may talk about Caravaggio's um, beheading of St. John the Baptist. You know, that, that's a that's a distraught individual in that head of Goliath, but this is not, this, this is, this is a, a, a Jesus who just wants this to stop, wants us to recognize this shouldn't be happening. Right. And I'm going to uh, say something that probably only a middle-aged American man would say, but it's almost a Mr. Miyagi Jesus. <laughs> yeah, there, there is definitely, you know, and you had asked, there's definitely, you know, kind of a, a philosophical to it, uh, you know, this, 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 um, yeah, this knowing figure um, that, that this is not supposed to be happening, but it must. So let's clear it away and let's get on with it. Um, yeah. Well, the uh, Caravaggio I'd like to turn to next uh, is actually the beheading of St. John the Baptist, because I think you make a good case in this book that this is Caravaggio's masterpiece. So, if you don't mind, convince our listeners. <laughs> well, this was done very late in um, Caravaggio's life. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the interview, um, we know most of our uh, information about Caravaggio from police records. Um, he was frequently in brawls in taverns in Naples, in Rome, um, uh, later, he tried very hard to be a knight of Malta, which was an honor. Um, he actually killed a man in a tennis match. I mean, he really was uh, a tortured soul. Um, he, he liked very much to associate himself with um, classes of people that were not the intelligentsia, that were not the, the Vatican um, wealthy patrons, not the the Strozzi's and the Farnese's and the Medici's and all the names that we know as the powerful people. But he liked the people on the street and he often painted the people on the street. Um, but I don't, but I think he, he lived a very, um, 
uh, conflicted is probably the best word, conflicted life, that we have so much spiritual art, so much Catholic art, but yet he was in brothels and he was um, obviously, you know, fighting people and not doing the best things at night and so forth. So this last work that he, um, he does, Beheading of St. John the Baptist, um, you simply see uh, the, the, the head, uh, the decapitated head, with the self-portrait of, um, of Caravaggio in it. And it, it's full of anguish and sorrow and loss, really, that he, it's just he's had it. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's over. Um, and, I, and I think he felt that more than once in his life. You know, I'm not a psychiatrist or psychologist, but I think many people who have read and really studied Caravaggio um, probably thought that he did have kind of a manic depressive or certainly a depressed state of mind much of his life. Um, so, yeah. Very good. I was interested to see you grant as a sort of given that uh, when Donatello sculpts Mary Magdalene, uh, that he sculpts the composite reformed prostitute version of the character that modern biblical scholarship has largely rejected. So when, yeah. we, when we grant that Donatello and other artists are working as historical beings with the understandings of things that their own moment assumes and our own moment rejects, uh, what remains in art like that once we discard that distance that might still enrich the spirit? Well, I, I think before you discard it, I think you need, and this is the history part of the history of art, um, why, who, who did Donatello think Mary Magdalene was, is the question you should be asking. Um, and at that time, because Pope Gregory the Great in 592 conflated all of the Mary, uh, Mary of Magdala, Luke's unnamed woman in the city who was a sinner, Mary of Bethany, the sister of Martha, um, and then extra-biblical, like golden legend penitent Magdalene, who went off to the wilderness, as you say, that, you know, modern um, biblical scholars, you know, probably reject. Um, and it was just this one, that's who they knew as Mary Magdalene, which when you create a visual tradition that has this as its foundation, you have lots of different ways of portraying her. Her hair is loose um, because she was a prostitute. Her um, clothes look as, as it does in Donatello, like she's been out in the wilderness, and, and that's, that's wood, that's carved wood that was painted. So it's, it's a beautifully tactile sculpture um, that really makes you, and the, the hollows in her face makes you think about the, any penitential figure, even if you do have that biblical knowledge that that probably wasn't Mary Magdalene or, you know, whatever you want to call it. She's a penitential figure. Everyone agrees on that. But what should she look like? And Donatello gives you that visual. Very good. I, I, I'm reminded of the version of Mary Magdalene you get in Cousin Zacchaeus's novel, The Last Temptation of Christ, where mm -hmm. he is certainly aware of that biblical scholarly tradition, uh, but he still returns to, you know, for lack of a better term, the Renaissance uh, legends of Mary Magdalene. So, I mean, I, I'm fascinated by all these, you know, simply because of their complexity. 
Yes, and then Mary Magdalene is is an incredibly complex figure to begin with, and then when when she gets conflated into you know one conglomerate story, I think I call it, um, then it becomes even more interesting from a, a a visual tradition. And so long as we never mention Dan Brown, I'm happy with that complexity. <laughs> oh yeah, don't get me started on Dan Brown. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Well, I want to turn to a a modern tension in Christian colleges and the academy more broadly. Uh, And it's one thing that a critically minded reader might notice in this volume. Uh, And that is how this rich tradition of Dutch and Italian and Flemish and other painters uh, might contribute to the theological vision that has come under such critique lately of the white Jesus and a European shaped Christianity more broadly. Uh, let me ask you this. I mean, what place does this, again, beautiful tradition have uh, in a church that is trying to escape from, you know, some of the terrors of white supremacy on one extreme, but then also just a narrow vision of European Christianity to the exclusion of others on the other? Uh, you know, can we still study this stuff? Please tell me we can still study this stuff. Right. Well, again, I am not. I'm not, with a big N-O-T, a biblical scholar. Um, I am not a theologian. I'm an art historian. So for me, I fell in value in the historical uh, path to learn from and understand and appreciate and try to go forward in my contemporary world. So I can't change the European history that the painters painted uh, Jesus the way they looked. Um, but I can hope that more Christian artists will paint Jesus today as they look. Very good. Uh, yeah, I mean, this this is definitely, like I said, I, I noticed it while reading this book because uh, just recently our other podcast, the Christian Humanist Podcast, did a three-part series on a, one of James Cone's books, the African-American theologian who died recently, so... I I think you're right that, I mean, an awareness of this history, and I'd I'd say even an aesthetic appreciation of it, can exist alongside, as long as you're aware of the alongsideness, if you will, of the two traditions. Do you think that's a fair way to put it? I think that's an excellent way to put it. And I will say, this past summer, I was in Milan with a a group of my my sons. I I have a son who's a junior um, right now in college. Um, and he had, was over on an overseas program, and I went through um, the um, Milan Museum, the Ambrosiana, with uh, three three women of color and, and my son Matthew, who's who is a white male, and and I realized that none of these pictures looked like the women that I was with, and you know, so I, I we talked about it, you know, and I, and I just said I said so I, um, two were. Um, um, uh, black women and one was an Indian woman, and I said, I said, okay, well, how can you know how can you appreciate this, and how can you take something away from this, and um, and feel a part of this, and if you don't feel a part of this, you know why? What what can we what can we talk about? And it was a wonderful exchange and a thoughtful um, understanding of that period, and then it very easily flowed into where they all were now, you know, and how they felt about it and what they could appreciate and try to accept and yet try how to move forward. So um, I understand exactly what you're saying. Very good. 
Well, I want to hark back to the book's uh, foreword by uh, Robert Krushwitz, where he notes that for the artists, these biblical images come not from lay people's lack of literacy, as I was taught when I studied medieval art as an undergraduate, but from the abundance of the intellect of the artists. Uh, this made perfect sense once I read it, but my teachers, who were good teachers, did not emphasize the, the strong intellectual character of these artists so much as they, they emphasized the need that medieval art was trying to meet. Um, let me ask you this. I mean, why is this awareness of abundance so important when Christians study art history? Well, first let me say, in the medieval world, I don't think your professors were wrong. I mean, if we, if we take um, art before 1400 with the Renaissance, or even if you want to push it back to you know, 1310 with Giotto. Um, before that, really, it, it was not the intellect of the, the artist. I mean, it was the patron, it was the church, it was the, um, the person commissioning the object or telling them what to sculpt on a Gothic cathedral or the craftsman who made the mosaics. Um, the theology was not coming from the artist. So in that sense, you're right. Um, but what happens in the Renaissance, and part of this, what we call it the Renaissance, is because then um, the humanistic side of man comes more to the forefront. And so then the intellectual tradition is, is needed to fully um, do a Sistine Chapel ceiling, for example, you know, and the theology of the Sistine Chapel. And that was a combination of artists, and theologians then in a way that really didn't happen, in all fairness to your professors, um, in the Middle Ages. But back to your question, um, the awareness of the abundance um, is, so, is important when you're trying to figure out um, what was the message at that time and what message do I get now in this time. Very good. Well, I have been at the wheel for most of this conversation, so in the spirit of hospitality, I want you to have the last word. Uh, what do you want our listeners thinking about painting, sculpture, the Bible, or whatever else as we head for the door? Well, thank you for the opportunity. Um, I think all I really want to say is um, this book covers the whole history of art, and it even includes modern artists such as Edward Hopper, and George Bellows, that people would not consider quote-unquote religious artists and or artists inspired even by religious subjects. But I, I shape them in a way, or I hope I try to, shape them in a way that they still um, have a, a significance for the contemporary Christian. So lots of the works are historical. I try to give a, um, a background to each and every artist I discuss. Um, you can read small sections. You could read just about Hopper. You could read just about Caravaggio. But I think overall what I'm trying to do is give people yet another avenue um, to ground themselves as, as we're in a very complicated world right now. Heidi Hornick, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed it. Listeners, thank you for downloading and listening in. The book is The Art of Christian Reflection from Baylor University Press. Christian Humanist Profiles is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. And I am Nathan Gilmore saying, Go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord.